We're glad that you're here for our study of Ephesians. And if you will, open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. There was uh, an outline in the Fellowship Hall and in the foyer, and I trust you've been able to find one of those. If you don't have one, maybe your neighbor might have one that he would share with you. Now, we've been studying in the first chapter of Ephesians, and in the original text here, there are two very long sentences, one with 202 words in the Greek language, and that's the one we've studied from verse 3 through verse, verses 3 through 14, and our sentence for today, 169 words beginning in verse 15. Now, we've seen how God has been magnificently presented, shining forth in the doctrines of predestination, adoption, redemption, forgiveness, and revelation. And is it any wonder that Paul refers to God the Father in our lesson today in verse 17 as the Father of glory? So here we begin another long sentence. On a cold morning in January of 2007, a man in street clothes made his way to the metro station in Washington, D.C. He set up shop in a little arcade right next to the entrance where people were rushing to catch their subway to wherever they were going that morning. He was carrying a case with him, and it was rush hour. And according to the hidden video camera, about 1,100 people passed by while that man was there. He opened his case. He pulled out a violin. He was just an ordinary-looking guy wearing a baseball cap. And he began to play his violin with the people passing by. He played selections from Bach and Schubert and Mendelssohn. And he played for about 45 minutes. Seven people out of the 1,100 stopped to listen for a few minutes and then hurried on past. Some children wanted to stop and listen, but their mothers ushered them along to their appointments uh, wherever they were going. And about 20 people tossed some money in the kitty as they went by. When the 45 minutes were finished, the man put his violin back in his case, counted the money in the kitty, uh, $32.17. Some people had given pennies. And when he had finished and silence reigned, No one applauded. No one noticed. He picked up his case, and he went on his way. Now, this occasion was actually prearranged by the Washington Post as a part of a social experiment to gather information about people's tastes, perceptions, and their priorities. The Post wanted to answer some questions like these. How do we perceive beauty? Do we take time to appreciate it? Do we recognize talent in an unexpected context. You see, the musician was Joshua Bell. He was a world-renowned violinist. He was playing a Stradivarius violin that was 300 years old, valued at $4 million. And he was actually one of the greatest musicians, the greatest violinist in the world. He won a Grammy Award for Violin Concerta. He won the Avery Fisher Prize, given every several years to classical instrumentalists for outstanding achievement. Uh, 
Finally, just before the end of his mini concert, one lady did recognize him as she had been to one of his concerts and came up and thanked him for his playing. Well, those who evaluated the experiment for the Washington Post came to this conclusion. Talent is not enough. Talent is not enough. It takes more than talent. It's going to be something to have to do with location, marketing, advertising, recognition, and your image. If it's true that talent is not enough in the entertainment business, it certainly would be true that talent is not enough in the church. It takes the surpassing greatness of God's power. And that's what we want to talk about this morning. Paul is going to tell us in this passage some things that we could be thinking about that the church is going to need in addition to talent. We have the talent sitting in the pews. Now we want to see what Paul would have us to know in addition to the talent. Years ago when Yvonne and I lived in Birmingham, we attended a large church that over the years had a major impact in that city and across the world through missions. There were many talented people in that church. There were businessmen and women. There were those representing the professions, the arts and sciences. There were dynamic teachers and great leaders. But our pastor recognized that there is something that is needed more than talent. And that main thing, I believe, and he believed, is prayer. And that's where Paul begins in our lesson for today. Prayer. Let's take a look at what we're going to see. First, prayer, and then our perception or our insight or understanding with regard to what Paul is talking about, and then the preeminence of Christ. So the prayer of intercession, in verse 16, if you're following in your Bible, Paul says, I do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. Now Paul is talking about a particular kind of prayer, intercessory prayer. That's where we pray for other people. We have talked before about the fact that prayer could be illustrated by a sailboat. And oftentimes our boat is only flying one sail. And that would be the supplication sail. That's when you think of all the things you want, you tell God everything, and then you say, in Jesus' name, amen. Now that is biblical, because we see in Philippians 4, 6, in everything by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. Be made known to God. But if you're familiar with that verse, something has been left out. What is it? Thanksgiving. Yes, and thanksgiving is another important aspect of prayer besides supplication. We thank God for all the things that He has done in our lives and everything He's given us as His adopted sons. And we'll look at some of those things today. But there are other things to pray about. There would be praise of God, and it's easy to praise God. Because all you do is open the Bible and you start following along, saying the same thing Moses said, and David said, and Daniel said, and the Apostle Paul said in the New Testament, and it's not plagiarism. God intended for you to copy those prayers. And you can substitute whatever looks good to you, and that's the way we learn how to pray. 
I noticed in the epistles that Paul did a whole lot of one type of praying that sometimes is rather diminished in our churches. Now, we pray for Jack, who's not feeling well. We pray for John, whose automobile has given him some problems. We pray for Sally, who's getting ready to get married. But what if we wanted to go deeper in prayer for other people? Well, if you look in the Scripture, you'll see that Paul gave a lot of attention to intercessory prayer. And a long time ago, I became interested in prayer, and I began to look in the book of Ephesians and Colossians and Philippians and First and Second Thessalonians, and I got on the computer and I just wrote down all of the intercessory prayer that Paul gave. And I keep a copy of those because that's what I pray for you and for others. And so as I looked on my list, I see that the first four items on the list would be just what we're talking about in our lesson today. So let's see what those prayers might be. Verse 16, Paul gives thanks for these Ephesian Christians and makes mention of them in prayer. Verse 17, that God the Father would give them a spirit of wisdom and revelation in knowledge of Him. Verse 18, that the eyes of their understanding would be enlightened, that they would know the hope of Christ calling the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. And verse 19, that they would know the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe, the same power that raised Christ from the dead. And I noticed in the book of Ephesians and on my list, that's followed by four other verses in Ephesians 3. Interestingly, it's the same numbers of verses, 16, 17, 18, and 19. And in this first section that we read, Paul is telling people what they needed to know. Like in verse 17, that God may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in knowledge of Him so that you can know Him, so that you can know His character and what He's all about and what He expects of you. That's a prayer for the church for enlightenment. We need enlightenment. We need to understand who God is and how He works. And then in chapter 3, his second prayer is for enablement. Not what you need to know, but what you need to do. After you already know what you need to know, then you can go to work doing what God wants you to do. That you might be strengthened with His might by His Spirit in the inner man in chapter 3, verse 16. Prayer for enlightenment, prayer for enablement. Then we've got the complete package. It was interesting to me that those were the very eight verses that were on my list. And there are many others. I would encourage you, if you want to pray for other people, just pray what Paul prayed because he covered all the bases. First, we have to know and understand what Christ has done for us. Then we begin to perceive, we gain insight that will enable us to put into practice His amazing grace for everyday life. This power that He gives us, this surpassing greatness of this power is geared toward the Christian life. It's not just that we can go out and do a bunch of miracles. It's that we can put off that old self and get that attitude of Christ 
and become like him by putting on the new self as we go along. Now, look in your Bibles at verse 16. I do not cease to make mention of you in my prayers. But in the previous verse, God gives the reason why he is making mention of these Ephesian Christians. Verse 15. Here's Paul's motivation. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. And then he goes on to say, I do not cease giving thanks for you. It had been four or five years since Paul had been with these people in the Ephesian church. But he had heard from them, word had come to him that the bud of faith had blossomed into the beautiful orchid of love. Faith in God, love for others. That's the way it works. Of course, we love God too, but in order to love God, you've got to believe that what he has said is true. And that's where that enlightenment comes in, where the Spirit gives wisdom so that in the eyes of our hearts we can understand who God is. And the more we understand who He is, the more we're going to love Him and the more His love can flow through us to other people. Now, we are not told in any of the book of Ephesians that in the Ephesian church God found a bunch of talented and very successful, prominent people in the city of Ephesus. There may have been some, We're not told that, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul did say that God didn't call many who were mighty according to the flesh, or wise, or noble. And we see in verse 15 that it looks like it's just ordinary Christians in Ephesus who had faith in God and who had love toward others. Notice to whom Paul is writing. He is writing to all the saints. Who are the saints? Well, it's not the New Orleans football team, I can assure you. The saints would be the Christians. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that the church can appoint someone to be a saint, especially after they've already departed this earth. The only chance you've got to be a saint is right now. So if you want to be a saint, Saint Jeff, Saint Tim, you've got to do it now because after you're dead, then comes the judgment. So we want to be clear about who the saints are and we want to understand to whom Paul is speaking here. Now we see the first requirement in this business of application of all these blessings The blessings we learned in chapter 1, it came from God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. I think it would be prayer. It would be prayer, thanking God for all He's done for us. It would be prayer to take those things and pray that other people are going to recognize this enlightenment that we have that would make life so wonderful, even if you have difficult circumstances. Have you ever read about Christians throughout history? who had difficult circumstances, and yet they were joyful and they were talking about contentment and they lived through all kinds of impossible things. They had some enlightenment as to who God was, who God is, and where they are going when the suffering is finished. Now, a baby Christian may not have much knowledge, but he can pray. 
All of us can pray. We may not have great talents. We may not be able to do some of the things that God has equipped other people to do. But everybody can pray. And I want to encourage you, even when you're young, get into praying. That's something that's going to last you the rest of your life and on into eternity. If you don't know how to pray, get into the Bible. It's kind of like learning how to swim. To learn how to swim, you've got to get in the water and start splashing around a bit and just get into the Scripture and begin praying. So we come to the perception of the truth. Paul thanked God for this faith and love in the Ephesian church. But what do you think is going to be the first thing that he's going to pray for these people? Freedom from persecution, maybe? Health, wealth, and prosperity, perhaps? What about a generous operating budget for their church in Ephesus? Now, it's not wrong to pray for any of these things. Uh, These would be some good things to pray for. But these are not the priority things if you want the church to function the way God intended. It's not just to get a bunch of successful, talented people with a lot of money and and do the thing in the community. There's more to it than that. Here's what Paul says. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in knowledge of Him. That's the first thing that he's praying for these Ephesian Christians. That they're going to know who God is, that they're going to understand what the Word says, that they're not going to get confused by these false teachers and these uh, wolves in sheep's clothing that come along to lead astray the flock. What is a wisdom, a spirit of wisdom and revelation in knowledge of Him? What's that talking about? You might have the revelation of the Spirit in the Word. We all have the revelation of the Spirit in the Word. All you have to do is open your Bible. But we need also the wisdom of the Spirit in our hearts because that's how we're going to perceive the truth that we're reading in the Word. And that would be one reason that we don't want to grieve the Spirit or quench the Spirit. Because if you're reading the Word of God but you don't have that spirit of wisdom and understanding in your heart, you may not be getting everything that God intended. Keep reading, because God will bring conviction, and you can get that barrier out of the way. God forgives all sin. You have to grasp what you're reading in order to put it into effect in your life. And perhaps that's the reason that so many Christians wouldn't say, you know, I'm not really living an abundant life. I wouldn't really call it abundant. I'd call it pretty rough. Well, there's more to be understood about it. And then the Spirit begins to work in our hearts to apply that, and then we just have a different outlook on things. You can see that in athletics. Some guys have a different outlook than other guys, and the guys with the winning outlook, it's more than positive thinking. It's more than just great talent. It's a perspective of the way you see things, the way you see God. Now, it's got to be a practical and experiential knowledge of God. It's not facts like you find in a phone book. So you can memorize Scripture, but you've got to meditate on that Scripture to understand what it's saying, how God wants to use that in your hearts. And what i found is, sometimes I look at a verse that I had memorized with my mother when I was a little boy, but I didn't see everything God had for it for me back then. 
And as I look at it now, I say, oh yeah, now I see a lot more things that happens all the time as life goes along. So keep in mind to whom Paul is writing. Why would he ask God to give the Spirit to Christians who already have the Spirit? Well, it's the same case precisely for us at FCF. What is already present must be strengthened. And later on, Paul talks about that spirit of wisdom and revelation in Ephesians 3.16. That he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. And in our verse, to give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in knowledge of him. Now, how are we going to get this revelation in knowledge of him? And here it comes, verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your understanding, some translations say of your heart, may be enlightened, that you may know. That you may know what? That you may know some things. The what things? The hope of his calling, the riches of the glory of his inheritance, and the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. Matthew Henry comments on that point. He says, The graces and comforts of the Spirit are communicated to the soul by the enlightening of the understanding. In this way, he gains and keeps possession. Satan takes a contrary way. He gets possession by the senses and the passions. Christ by the understanding. So do you try to find a church that will make you feel good? Or do you find one where they're really working to get at the truth of Scripture? Well, we all have to decide about that. Then we come to the next thing Paul prays, the hope of his calling. In this case, we're not referring to your vocation, your location, or your education. We're not talking about God called me to be a missionary to the people in Barneo or anything like that. We're talking about your vocation as a believer, your vocation as a Christian. Holiness is our calling. It's synonymous with Christianity, to become like Christ. We are talking with the men yesterday, some synonyms for holiness. Sanctification, purity, Christ-likeness. That is our calling in this context. What is the hope of our calling? What's Paul talking about? This would be all the benefits of being a Christian. What would be some? Now, typically we don't think about these things too much, but just consider for a minute. Purpose in life. Have you ever been around people that don't have any life purpose? They're just kind of stumbling on through. And it's pretty rough sometimes. Freedom from guilt. How about that? Membership in the body. Not just this body, but the universal church. Anywhere you go, you can find Christians and have a unity of spirit with those people. Riches in heaven. We've talked about that one. How about power over sin? That is a big one. A source of strength greater than yourself. Answers to the questions of life. Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? What is life all about? Prayer. Contact with God. Contact with God in the universe. And then agape love. I don't think you can have true agape love unless you have Christ. I certainly don't think you can maintain it for very long even if you are copying it. So it's all that and more, and it has to be 
experiential, as we said, in our lives. It's got to be something where that hope is, is giving me motivation to press on through the day. I have some challenges today, but I've got the hope of a better day and the hope of the power of Christ working through me to enable me to face these challenging situations without sin, without doing it man's way. This is a hope far beyond what any political party could offer. We're hearing a lot now about hope, and I have hope too for the next election. But this is well beyond that because this is not limited to any circumstance or happenstance. It's whatever happens. Christ is in control of that. And notice that Christ is working all of these things for the church. That's us. He's the head of the church. And we'll get to those verses that tell us about that. Here's a good verse for that hope. Hebrews 6 and verse 19. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil where Christ has entered as a forerunner for us. So we come to the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. Now we were introduced to this inheritance back in verse 11, chapter 1 of Ephesians. The Apostle Peter tells us in his, uh, the first chapter of his first epistle that this is inheritance, an inheritance which is incorruptible, undefiled, kept in heaven for you. Nothing is going to happen to this inheritance. As a guarantee of that, we have the earnest of the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. Some Bible scholars say that Paul is referring to God's inheritance in the saints. Well, it might be that. Our inheritance is in Christ. Christ's inheritance is in us. Christ has plans for us, and we're going to see in just a moment that Christ evidently is not really complete. Of course, He's complete in Himself, but His plan is not complete until the bridegroom is with the bride. We'll get that in some verses that are coming up here. So God's people are precious to Him, and He looks forward to being with them forever and ever. The riches of the glory of His inheritance are the guarantee of the eternal blessedness that God has promised to His people. We're going to be blessed. When hard times come, God will turn that into a blessing, just like He did in Daniel's life and many others in the Scripture. The storehouse of God's wealth in this inheritance is not limited or affected by time or expenditure. There is infinitely more and more and more. His wealth is infinite and it's secure. No inheritance on this earth would fit that definition, that it is infinite and secure. You might have a pretty good inheritance, but what if war comes? What if there's a change in the government and they raise the inheritance taxes? All kind of things are kind of tedious in this world in which we live. Well, we've got to get quickly to the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe, verse 19. And here's the passage. And what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe? These are in abundance with the working of the strength of His might, 
which He brought about in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in heavenly places. God's power is the link between the hope and His inheritance that we have. This power that is is at work in the believer is the same power that raised Christ from the dead. Now, you've heard stories of other people being dead on the operating table for a little while and they bring them back to life and they tell what they've seen, but I'm talking about a man who was battered and bruised and he was beaten almost to death before the cross. He hung on the cross. Professional executioners pronounced him dead. He was dead. And then he lay in a cold, damp tomb, I presume, all night, a better part of some part of three days, And then he came back to life, and when you saw him, he didn't look exactly like he did when he went into that tomb. No one has ever been raised from the dead like that, because that takes a power that is only available to God. Well, that's exciting, but how does that resurrection power affect me today? And how will it it help me on Sunday afternoon? Will it make me wealthy? Will it make me comfortable? Will it make me happy? No, it's supposed to make me holy. But if I want a life filled with joy and gladness that's not dependent on what's going on about me, then I'd better be becoming like Christ. Because Christ would maintain His spirit of joy and gladness in the midst of some very difficult times. This is nothing less than the power to obey Christ's commands and prove that I love Him. Do you love Christ? If you do, it says you will obey His commands. But look, what if I'm defeated by some particular sin? Jerry Bridges writes a little book, The Pursuit of Holiness. Our reliance on the Spirit is not intended to foster an attitude of I can't do it but of one of I can do it through Him who strengthens me. The Christian should never complain of want of ability and power. If we sin, it's because we choose to sin, not because we lack the ability to say no to temptation. Too often we say we are defeated by this or that sin. No, we are not defeated. We are simply obedient. The power is there. We may not always tap into it, but it is available. Now, let's take a look at some strategies for obedience. Because of the surpassing surpassing greatness of His power, we're able to do that which is both attainable and sustainable, and that is to overcome sin in our lives. It's even advisable if we want joy and gladness. Whom do you obey? Do you obey your want-tos or do you obey your ought-tos? We've talked about this before. John Piper, in his little book entitled Taste and See, identified some strategies people use on occasion. Some strategies for obedience. You might be praying for my voice as time goes along here. The most popular strategy would be this one. Pretend that your ought-tos just don't exist. When your want-tos don't match your ought-tos, just pretend you don't have any ought-tos. Just toss them out the window and forget about them. 
This would be the most popular strategy by far. Whatever you do that you ought not to do is forgiven anyway, some people would say, so it doesn't really matter that much. It is forgiven, but it does matter. And it especially matters if it's your car that was stolen. Then you get into moral absolutes and things like that. So uh, young people, we're talking about a wrong strategy here. Where will that strategy take you? Someone has said it'll take you further than you want to go, keeping you longer than you want to stay, and charge you more than you want to pay. And that was certainly true for Samson, who threw out the ought-tos and just did what he wanted to and got into all kinds of trouble on that. He wanted to have his fun and freedom, but he paid a rather high price. Feel like having a bad attitude? What do you do? Tap into that power that is available. Well, second possibility, somehow force your ought-tos to be equal to your want-tos. Piper says this is a little more sophisticated approach and not quite as common. It takes a college education, he says, to do it with credibility and a seminary degree to do it with finesse. Force your ought-tos to be equal to your want-tos. Well, unto the pure, all things are pure. Timothy 1.15, right. All things are pure that are pure, but all things are impure that are impure, like moral impurity. So don't get mixed up. Here's the reason. This marijuana is organically grown, and God made it, and it's used for medicinal purposes. And the more progressive states have made it entirely legal, so I think I'll light up this joint and get a little buzz on, and thank you, Lord, for helping me feel better. Now, that would be the kind of reasoning to make your ought-tos equal to your want-tos. But this strategy will lead you to the same place as number one. But you can go out in style, dressed in your Sunday best, as it were. Don't let anybody fool you. It's going to take a supernatural source of strength to overcome your tendencies of your natural inclinations when your want-tos don't add up to your ought-tos. Well, third strategy, grit your teeth and do the right thing even though you don't want to. Is that a good one? Well, that's better than one and two. But how long can you live as a practical hypocrite? Sooner or later, here's what happens. Your mind and your feelings gang up on your will. And your mind says, Ooh, man, this looks pretty good. And your feelings say, Man, what are you talking about? This feels good. And your wimpy will says, But fellas, we ought not to do that. It's not right. What do you think your mind and your feelings are going to do for your will? Toss him right out the door. Now, like I said, this is a better strategy than the first two, but it's difficult to live this way. God says he loves a cheerful giver, not just an ought-to giver. So here's the better strategy, in my opinion. Get some new want-tos so that your want-tos will be equal to your ought-tos. Exchange your old ones for something much better. Here's the problem. Augustine said, you are free to do what you like, but you're not free to like what you ought to like. Let me read that one more time to see if you agree. You're free to do what you like, but you're not free to do what you ought to like when that old nature is in control. 
Unfortunately, we're born with sin nature. If you don't believe that, just take one cookie and two little babies, put it down there, see what happens. Better still, take one toy, five two-year-olds, put the toy in the middle, see what happens. We want, not that we're evil, maybe, but we just want things for ourselves. Romans 8, verse 7, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. How are they going to come to Christ if they don't understand? The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Do we keep giving them? Yes, we keep giving him the things of the Spirit of God, and we hope that the Lord, through His Spirit, would touch His heart that He might understand. But you can have your want-tos changed by the power of God. I didn't say you'd hit sinless perfection, but you get the three A's when you become a Christian. I hope everybody in the church has the three A's memorized because it'll really help you in witnessing situations, especially when people are thinking, you know, a Christian is supposed to be perfect after he becomes a Christian. No, you get a new awareness of what is right and wrong because you've got that enlightenment of the Spirit in your heart and His wisdom. You get a new ability to choose the right and reject the wrong. You might not do it every time, but you have a stronger ability to be able to do it by the power of the Spirit. But here's the big thing. You get a new attitude. You want to choose the right And with those three things, you begin walking toward conformity to Christ and away from conformity to the world, the world that's in opposition to the Lord and His teaching. You see it in Romans 6. It says, Do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Sin shall not have dominion over you. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves of righteousness. Now, I will assure you it's a battle. But if you want to consistently do good works and have good character, you're going to have to get some new want-tos. Come to Christ. Confess your need for a Savior. Repent of your sin and commit your life to Him. How is that possible? Where does the power come from? And we close here with the preeminence of Christ. The Father of glory seated Christ far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The power, this power available to us, is above all power in the universe, outside the universe, principalities, powers, world forces of evil in this world and beyond this world. Christ is the authority of everything. Have you ever longed to have authority, young people? Do you long to have authority to be able to tell yourself what to do and have no one telling you? Remember that the purpose of authority is service. We may not always see that in the world, but that's the purpose of authority. Christ came to serve. Yeah, but what about now? He has all authority. Well, He is still going to serve. Listen to this, Luke 12, 37. Blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, will find watching. Assuredly, I will say that he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat 
and will come and serve them. Now, I don't know everything there is to know about that verse, but Christ came to serve, and He wants us to serve. And if you're in a place of authority, you can serve better. Many people, a broader scope of things. Now, He says, which is His body, the church which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. The fullness of Christ who fills all in all. The good shepherd would not be full or complete without the sheep. As we said, the bridegroom, Christ, would not be complete without the bride. And one day he's coming back to pick up his bride. Nothing can prevent the realization of our hope in Christ. We're going to have this glorious wedding day and the wedding feast of the Lamb, and nothing can prevent that. Hallelujah. So let's see what we want to take home with us today. A couple of things as we go. What will it take for this church to accomplish God's will? We've got the talent, but it's going to take prayer. It's going to take knowing some things. It's going to take understanding that Christ has all power and all authority. And whatever happens... He's still in control, and He's using it for His glory. Well, here's something. Get all five sails flying when you pray. That would be confession and praise and thanksgiving and intercession for others and supplication for yourself. It's a a schooner with five sails. You're going to do a lot better than a little skiff with just one sail. Pray for others and thank God for them, just like Paul did. Thank God for the privilege of being a Christian and all those benefits that are available to us. When you don't want to do what you ought to do, stop and ask God for power to do what's right. Well, what about you? Do you know right from wrong? Certainly we all do. Do you have the ability to choose the right most of the time, the one's perfect? Do you have the attitude that you want to do what's right? That's the big one. If not, come to Christ. Confess your need for forgiveness. Commit your life to Him to experience the surpassing greatness of His power.